Songs chapter, a Song of Solomon, chapter 5. The Song of Solomon, chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 2 through 6 this evening. And uh, entitle it, The Bride's Troubling Evening. But uh, I guess I could subtitle it, uh, Trouble in Paradise. Because um, last, last week, when we studied the, the, the uh, first part of uh, chapter 4 through the first part of chapter 5, we were getting an inside peek, I guess you say, a preview of their wedding night. And all was bliss and all was just, you know, wonderful. It was their honeymoon and, and you, know, you know how they say the honeymoon doesn't last forever. Well, you know, uh, we, get a, we get a peek of, at that tonight. And, and you know what, it's, it's good. It's important because it's about resolving conflict. It's about the things that cause conflict, but more importantly, how, and also how to not get the ball rolling when it comes to conflict, but also to, to resolve it. So let's begin with verses 2 through 3. And again, the Shulamite, Solomon's bride, uh, his wife, she's doing the speaking. So in verse 2 it says, I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I have taken off my robe, how can I put it on again? I have washed my feet. How can I defile them? So she's, again, she's, she's doing the speaking, and she's speaking for her husband what he said to her at this time in verses 2 through 3. Two through three. She says, I, I, I slept, I was sleeping, but, but my heart was awake. And she said, when I heard my lover knocking and calling, he said, open to me, my treasure, my darling, you know, my love. He says, he said to her, my head is drenched with dew. My hair is wet from the dampness of the night. But she says, I responded to him. I have taken off my robe. Should I get dressed again? I washed my feet. Should I get them soiled? So many believe that this is, this is a dream that she's having. But if verse 3 here, where she answered, I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I have washed my feet. How can I defile them? If verse 3 is understood to be a part of the dream... It's likely that the Shulamite, that is Solomon's wife, is still blaming herself for their separation. The weak excuses in the dream that she gave for not letting him in when he came knocking may reflect her inexcusable part in the lover's quarrel. As she was falling asleep, her husband knocks at the bedroom door. It's late. Even though it's her husband, her beloved husband, she doesn't want to get up. She doesn't want to let him. I'm already in bed. I've taken off my robe. I washed my feet. I don't want to get them dirty. Basically, I just don't want to get up and answer the door. Now, there could be a lot of reasons why she didn't want to get up. And as married folks, uh, you can use your imagination. Maybe they had plans and he worked late. Maybe she had dinner on the table and he didn't let her know that he was going to be home late. Maybe working late was becoming a habit. And again, maybe, maybe, maybe. A lot of things that can happen. But just like there are many reasons that cause conflict in marriage, the point is that one or both of them were at fault. All right? Both of them were at fault. The fault needed forgiving. Selfishness was the source of her refusal and causing their conflict. Selfishness is often, if not always, the source of our sin. It's all about me. 
and it's the cause of our conflict. If Solomon was at fault, the way she reacted was sinful. So now uh, they're both at fault. But no matter who's at fault, all right, we can learn about forgiveness from their example. Now, during the week after a Jewish wedding, family and friends treated the newlyweds like royalty. Couples today have a honeymoon and they usually go away to some special place for, you know, a few days a week or whatever. But they eventually have to come back and return to the reality of life with all of its problems, with all of its responsibilities. And so did Solomon and his wife. Now, here in chapter 5, we have ringside seats at the newlyweds' first conflict, their first fight. Conflict is a part of every relationship and especially marriage. And as a matter of fact, marriage probably gives the most volatile environment or, or sensitive environment for conflict. The, you know, it's the lifetime of two people every day, the blending of their lives into one. And, and each one, most likely with, with their different opinions, their different desires, their different emotions, you know, of each spouse. And it's a constant, again, every day, it's a blending of those two um, variants, you know, so it, it, it can be tough. Every day, these characteristics are wanting their way. They want to do what they want to do. With the responsibilities of work, bills, raising children, you are bound for conflicts. You are destined for conflicts, probably more than any other relationship. So it becomes an absolute necessity that we learn how to resolve conflict when it comes, when it happens. Now, are conflicts normal? Yes, absolutely. Now, people who say they don't have conflicts, I go, hmm, okay. You know, I lie, lie, lie. But anyway, uh, you know, you're not human. You're not human if you don't have conflicts. Maybe they do. I don't know. But I'm not a betting man, but I would bet against that. Anyway, one of the greatest things about the Bible is that the sins and the faults of those in the Bible, they're, those sins are never whitewashed. They're not hidden. They're brought out, which is a wonderful thing for us. Because again, it shows that they're human. Great men and women of God. And we get to see their wonderful accomplishments just as well as their terrible failures. David, King David, is probably one of the best examples of this. Even the greatest men and women in the Bible had conflicts. Showing that they're human. Just like us. And this is a very normal thing with sinners. The men and women that God used had conflicts. You know, conflicts with God, uh, with friends and family members, the church, fellow Christians. We have plenty of, of examples of it in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 and 2, we see Abraham and Sarah. They had an argument when Isaac was mocked by Hagar's son Ishmael. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 6 through 23, Michael, David's wife, despised her husband David for dancing wildly before the Lord after bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. In Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 through 16, Miriam and Aaron had a conflict with Moses because he married an Ethiopian woman. Galatians 2, 11 through 14, Paul had an argument with Peter and Barnabas when they wouldn't eat with the Gentiles because they were afraid of certain Jews that arrived from Jerusalem. Acts 6, 1 through 7. The early church had a conflict over certain widows that weren't being taken care of properly by the apostles. Acts 15, 39. Paul and Barnabas, they had a big argument. We'll look at that in a little while later. Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas had a big argument over John Mark 
they both went their own separate ways over that argument. Again, these are just a few examples of, of conflicts showing us that conflicts are normal, even between those who are godly and were used greatly by God. Like James tells us in chapter 5, verse 70, he says, like Elijah, he was a man with a nature like ours, used wonderfully by God, but he was no different than any other man. The difference, the difference comes in our relationship, our intimate relationship with the Lord. But in each of these conflicts that, that I read off to you, except for one, a solution was found. And it's important to remember that these men and women did not allow these conflicts to continue. They resolved them. And that's the important thing. Conflicts are normal occurrences between sinners. Now, don't think you're weird, some weird exception to the rule because you have conflicts. Conflicts are very normal and yours are most likely normal too. But what isn't normal is for you to allow these conflicts to continue without resolving them. Because this is in direct disobedience to God's word. You have to resolve your conflicts. Now, harmony will always be God's plan for your relationships and especially your marriage. God has called us to peace, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7.15. In the examples of marriage conflict that I mentioned earlier, Abraham and Sarah resolved their difference, but David and Michael were the only ones that didn't. Why is that? For the simple reason of how they both handle the conflict. Remember, she, she, she belittled David for the way he was, was rejoicing before the Lord. And when David heard that, she never had children for the rest of her life. And that could have been probably because he never went into her and had any relationships with her from that point on. See, they both handled it wrong. There was no resolving of that conflict. God wants you to learn how to handle the problems that divide you. But he wants you to learn how to, to solve those problems in the right way. And God is great at reconciling because he's given each of us the tools that we need to make things right with one another. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.19, I'm going to read it to you from the New Living Translation. He said, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation or the ministry of reconciliation. So you see, as Christians, we are called to be peacemakers because we have the ministry of reconciliation. Each of us has the ability to resolve the conflicts in our own relationships and to help others resolve theirs. Best of all, though, we have the Word of God. We have the Bible. We have the Word of God, the Word of Reconciliation that shows us how to solve problems. In Colossians 3.15, Paul said this, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. In other words, everything that disturbs the peace of God in our hearts is sin. No matter how small it is, no matter how little, uh, little uh, like sin it might first appear to be. When we lose our peace, the Holy Spirit convicts us. And, we, and, and on the spot, we are to stop and ask God to show us what's wrong. And then to ask for God's forgiveness. And once we do that, then His peace will be restored to us. But if God doesn't give us His peace, it might be... Because we're not really repentant. Maybe we really haven't said that we're sorry to the other person as well as we did to God. 
Or maybe we still feel it's the other person's fault, which is very much what happens all the time. We might say we're sorry, but inside we're going, it's still their fault. We really didn't mean it. But if we've lost our peace, it's pretty clear whose fault it is. Because we don't lose peace with God over another person's sin, but only over our own. And God wants to show us our reactions, and only when we're willing to, willing to be cleansed, then there will be His peace in our life. You know, and, and know this, it's nobody's fault for losing your peace. I let them, I let, I allow them to, to make, to, to let me stumble. I allow them to make me stumble, if you will. Nobody is to blame for losing your peace. So, it's important that we understand that. Um, but if, uh, again, it, or maybe we, like you said, we still feel it's the other person's fault. We don't lose peace with God over another person's sin, but only over our own. And God wants to show us that. He wants to show us our reactions, and only when we're willing to be cleansed will there be peace. Psalm 119, 165 says, again, when I said that nobody, uh, uh, it's not anybody else's fault for losing my peace. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 165, Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. Notice that. The psalmist said, Great peace have those who love God's word and nothing causes them to stumble. You see, your joy and your peace in the Lord is not dependent on other people's behavior or attitude. Jesus, Jesus taught people about conflicts and offenses. Jesus was very realistic when he said in Luke 17, 1, there will always be temptations to sin. It's always going to be be before you every day in a thousand ways. And he knew it was foolish to think that you wouldn't have any conflicts or offenses while living in this world. But he believed it was very possible that you and I could resolve these offenses. And he went on to tell us just how to do that. He taught the importance of taking the offense directly to the one who offended us to seek reconciliation and forgiveness in Matthew 5, verses 23 through 25. And in Matthew 18, 15. To go to that person and, and, and tell them what, what it is that's grieving you or, or how they offended you or, or you want to apologize for offending them. But you go to that person to seek to resolve that issue. His intention is for us also to be realistic and practical about the possibility of true reconciliation. But you have to start by first understanding that conflicts and disagreements will be normal in any relationship. And again, you're not some strange exception to the rule just because you have disagreements. Your marriage has these conflicts for very specific reasons. And you have to understand why if you're going to ever deal with these problems in the right way. Now, what causes conflicts to happen between people who really love each other? Understanding the causes of conflicts is the first step to resolving them. Anything, anything can cause a conflict between you and your spouse. And usually it is so trivial, so petty. Yet there are certain attitudes and behaviors that the Bible specifically points out to us as the possible cause. The Bible makes us aware of these problem areas so that we might know ourselves better 
and be able to deal with them quickly. So that's what we're going to look at now. We're going to look at some of the basic causes for conflict. The first one is, again, it begins with us. How about selfishness? Selfishness. Selfishness is the most basic cause of conflict between a husband and wife. When two people want their own way, you bet there's going to be trouble. When neither one is willing to back down or compromise, there will be trouble. Only when one or both die to self will the solution be found. I like what Pastor Xavier said one time. He said, if nobody dies, nobody lives. The Bible works only for dead people. It's so true. Dead to ourselves. Then the word of God can live in us and through us. If nobody dies, nobody lives. The Bible works only for dead people. Paul believed that dealing with self was totally necessary for a successful marriage. You know, in Psalm 139, when when the psalmist said, Lord, search me, search my heart. You know, a lot of times in our prayers as husband and wife, we say, Lord, search her heart. Show her her heart. Show her where she's wrong. Show her where she needs to change. No, it's search me. Show me, God, what's wrong in my life. Show me where I need to change. Show me how I need to do things differently. And when both people are doing that and they both, you know, are convicted and make those changes, they'll bless each other, you know, entirely. So, again, uh, it's important that we see how Paul starts his classic instructions in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, he says, Submitting to one another in the fear of God. And guys, we're real good at saying, look at what it says in Ephesians about submitting. But let's drop back down to 21 where it says submitting to one another in the fear of God. The word for submit there means to subordinate, to make oneself lower, to put under, to subdue unto, to make, uh, uh, to to make subject to, to put in subjective, uh, in subjection, to under, to be under, submit self unto. So what's, uh, what is to be subdued? Your flesh, yourself, you. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone desires to come after me, let him what? Deny himself. We pamper ourselves. We cater to ourselves. We exalt ourselves. We lift ourselves up. Jesus said, no, deny yourself. And he said, take up his cross, and you're to take up your cross, and then to follow him. You see, that between following Jesus, uh, between the desire to follow him, and there's a cross. You can't bypass the cross. Jesus knew you have to subdue the self that wants to rule and to control your your life and your marriage. And then Paul Paul goes on to explain to both husband and wife how they're to subdue uh, subdue themselves in their marriage. He tells the wives to subdue, uh, subdue themselves to the leadership of their husband as being the head of the home. And then he tells the husband to subdue themselves by rejecting selfishness and to serve and to care for their wives like Christ does for his church and give themselves away for her. Jesus gave himself. He gave himself, showing that her happiness and welfare was dearer to him than his own. A husband's duty is to love his wife. His love is to, his, 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 
his love, again, is to correspond to Christ's love for the church. He's to love his wife the way Christ loved his bride, the church. And this parallel restores the balance. If it should, if it should seem hard for the wife to be in subjection, the spirit of love, Christ-like love, on the part of the husband makes her duty that God has given her easier. And in order to understand what's causing the conflicts in your relationship, you have to find out where you're being selfish. How about pride? Proverbs 13.10 says, By pride comes nothing but strife. In Proverbs 28.25, it says, He who is of a proud heart stirs up strife. Nothing positive there about pride. Pride is the attitude that's stirring up the strife in your home. And you have to recognize it in your own heart and you have to get rid of it or conflicts and strife are going to continue. When you talk to your spouse, do you think you're always right? And she's always wrong. Do you have a superior attitude? It means you have pride and superiority in your heart and this attitude is what's causing the strife. Titus 3.2 encourages us to show all humility to all men. Because humility enables you to be submissive and it makes you willing to reconcile with one another. And if pride causes the conflicts, humility will always enable you to solve them. How about two opposing and strong wills? Man, that will bring conflict in a minute. Two opposing and strong wills. And I think one of the best examples of this is the standoff literally between Paul and Barnabas, as I mentioned earlier. Man, they were both about to start their second missionary journey. And they started talking about, who are we going to take? And they started talking about whether or not they should take John Mark with them. Because, you see, during the middle of their first trip together, John Mark just all of a sudden up and left them. And he went back home. Now listen to the discussion in John, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 15, verses 37 through 40. Listen to what it tells us. <clears throat> it says, now Barnabas was determined. There's the key word, determined. Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted, determined and insisted. Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And because one was determined and one insisted, it says, then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. It caused the division between the two. And so Barnabas took Mark and he sailed off to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and he took off and he departed and went, they went their separate ways. Here's two men, two godly men. Use mightily of God. One who insisted, one who was determined to have their own way, and it broke up their relationship. Thank God we see that they patched things up later on and they served together with John Mark. Again, humility and a heart that's willing to work things out will always look for, for resolving the problem. And it will look for a way to put the relationship back together. Paul and Barnabas each, they could have looked for a way to compromise to resolve the problem instead of stubbornly wanting their own way. Which one are you? Are you the one who proudly insists on your own way? Or do you humbly look to compromise and then reconcile? 
your, your, your heart attitude, the attitude of your heart will radically determine how often you have conflict and how fast you resolve it. Next, how about a whole bunch of sinful attitudes and behaviors? When you have attitudes, like the one we just talked about, determined and insistent, or you do things that are sinful, it will always bring strife between you and your spouse. And sinful attitudes, they create sinful behavior that will offend others. Listen to Jesus, to what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verse 21. He said, for from within, he said, out of the heart of men. You see where that comes from? From the heart. From within, out of the heart of men, that's our human nature. He said, proceed evil thoughts. You know, in the human mind. And then the action follows. He says, then proceed adulteries, fornications, murders, theft, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All of these things, Jesus said, come from within, out of the heart of man and defiles a man. For example, if you hold resentment in your heart towards your spouse, you can be sure that it's going to blow up one way or another. Anger doesn't just lie dormant in your heart. It simmers, it stews, and then it boils over. It has to come out somewhere, and it will come out towards someone. As Solomon said in Proverbs ten twelve, hatred stirs up strife. And you can start a conflict just by the way you talk to each other. The tone, the attitude. A fool, a Proverbs 18, 6 says, a fool's words get them into, into constant quarrels. A fool's words get them into constant quarrels. Do you speak harshly? Do you speak disrespectfully or boastfully? If you do, it will cause strife. How about being judgmental and critical? This causes strife. Proverbs 22, 10 says, throw out the scoffer and fighting goes to... Quarrels and insults will disappear. The word scoffer means to judge or to scoff at. If you judge or you mock each other, there's going to be problems. How about lying to deceit? This will bring conflict. The Bible has a whole lot to say about this subject. In Proverbs chapter 26, verses 24 through 28, it says, Solomon says, A lying tongue hates its victims and flattering words cause ruin. In other words, if you're not honest with your spouse and you lie to them, it's really a cover for hatred, uh, Solomon says. It shows the lack of love that you have for your spouse. Contentions result from being controlled by your flesh, by your fleshly nature. Paul said that contentions are a work of the flesh. Listen to what he said in Galatians 5, 19 through 20. And again, from the New Living Translation, it reads, When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, when you allow your flesh to rule, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division. Many of those are what you see in marriage. You know, when, 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 when there's selfishness and pride 
and, and we, we conduct ourselves in an ungodly way. This is why you should surrender the control of your life to the lordship and the leadership of Jesus Christ. Because it's the best way to bring stability and calm to your marriage relationship. Paul said in Galatians 5.16, if you walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the works of the flesh. That is, if you walk in the Spirit, you won't do these things of the flesh. You won't allow them to have the rule over you. If you're walking in the Spirit of God, you'll have rule over your flesh. Some of the things that we talked about are spiritual problems. And they can't be ignored. But they need to be dealt with in a straightforward and firm way. And if you're a committed Christian, conflicts in these areas can't be avoided. Avoided, You have to deal with them. All of these attitudes and behaviors rob you of the intimate and blessed companionship that marriage is supposed to, to encourage, that you're supposed to experience. If you have any of these problems in your marriage, you have to find out what is causing What's the source of them? Each of these problems have to be dealt with to fully resolve the conflicts between you. No one lives happily ever after every minute of every day, including our newlyweds here, Solomon and his bride. Solomon and his wife give us a rare glimpse, as I said, into marital conflict and into how it's fixed. Nearly two chapters in the Song of Solomon are devoted to a conflict between Solomon and his wife. But the conflict resulted in a deeper and better marriage. So we're going to look at the different stages of their conflict as we go along in Song of Solomon. So look at, let's look now at verses 4 through 6. She goes on to say, My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him. I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away, and he was gone. My heart leaped up when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. Here, Solomon refuses to go away before showing how much he wanted her and to be with her. But now, he feels like he's been wronged because his wife does not want to respond to him. So what does he do? He leaves. He probably felt that even though it was late, that he reached out to her in sincerity and tenderness. He talked to her nicely. He talked to her lovingly, sweetly. The myrrh mentioned here, the myrrh that he left on the latch of the door, that was a symbol of sweetness. His attitude toward her was tender. And what Solomon did here by leaving the myrrh at the door, that was a beautiful custom in that day. When a man was in love with a girl and he wanted to show his love, he'd go to her house and he'd leave a fragrance. The door was built in such a way as to leave an opening so that you could reach through, the, uh, through to the inside and remove the bar unless it was locked and barred, which was the case here. So when she didn't respond to his call, to his knock, he put myrrh on the inside handle of the door to let her know that he had been there. And when she finally came to the door to open the door, that wonderful fragrance was transferred to her fingers because when she touched the door, it was transferred to her fingers and he had left the sweetness of his presence with her. But when she didn't respond, he left. He probably felt rejected. You know, he was probably gun, gun, uh, grumbling on his, I can't believe she didn't open the door. You know, I came to you in a loving way and, and you rejected me and I, I don't deserve to be treated this way. 
When two people feel like they have been wronged, denied or misunderstood or unappreciated, that's where the conflict begins. And we see this here in our conflict between Solomon and his wife. Now, here's the thing. If only one feels wrong, wronged and then thinks, thinks it over and concludes, you know what? It's really no big deal. I really haven't been wronged or hurt. Then there probably is not going to be any argument. But many times we want to make a big deal out of something little. And at this point of feeling wronged, a conflict can be very uh, uh, easily resolved. If one person will be mature enough to just take it easy, think things through, pray about the situation, and make a loving, kind response aimed for the purpose of a greater good for their future. You can't decide that you don't need to react like your spouse did. I'm sorry, you can decide that you don't need to react like your spouse did. See, if your spouse has hurt you, you don't need to hurt them back. But that's kind of our human nature, wanting to get even. Whatever your spouse has done to you, you don't have to get even. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.15, so that no one pays back evil, see that no one pays back evil for evil, but always try to do good to each other and to all people. You are in control of how you respond. You don't have to respond in anger or hatefulness or meanness. You can respond with love and patience of the Holy Spirit rather than the revengeful and impatient spirit of the sinful nature. Strife starts when you let yourself have hurt feelings. And then you choose to feed on that hurt and to wallow in that hurt. Now, this doesn't mean that, that, you sh- that, that you shouldn't or you can't express that you were hurt. It just means wait until your emotions are in check. Wait until the one who's hurt you has cooled off or has their head on straight to hear what you have to say. And then have what the Bible gives us here, a fair fight. How to have a fair fight. How do you do that? Well, Ephesians 5, I'm sorry, Ephesians 4, 25 through 32 tells us how. Keep it honest. In Ephesians 4, verse 25, it says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. Keep it honest. Be committed to being honest and respecting each other. Paul said, speak the truth in love in Ephesians 4, 15. Speak the truth in love. But that means being concerned for the other person's feelings. We're, to, we're, we're encouraged to speak the truth, but in love. This means speaking the truth in such a way that you're concerned for the other person's feelings. You just don't let your words fly. You just don't let your behavior go out of control. Keep it under control. That's how you keep a, have a clean fight. Keep it under control. Again, um, uh, Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. I'm sorry, Ephesians 4.15, be angry and do not sin. Angry words spewing out when you're angry can be deadly. And you can never take them back. They can do irre- irreversible damage. It means God allows you to get angry. Paul said, get angry, but don't sin. It means, God, it, means, it means that God allows you to get angry, but for the right reasons. But he warns you, do not let it lead you into sin. If you look to Jesus as your example, as we should for everything else, we'll see that he, Jesus never got angry at people, at those who offended or hurt him. 
He got angry over those who hurt their fellow man. 1 Peter 2.20 verse 23 says, For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. In Genesis 4, 4 through 7, And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Notice, and Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Cain, why are you angry? He's, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? He said, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you don't do well, he said, he was, no, he was warning Cain. He said, if you don't do well, sin is lying at your door. It's just waiting to get a hold of you. He says, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. And we know the outcome. Cain never forgave. He never, he, you know, he, he stayed angry and he eventually murdered his brother. Jonah chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. He was so angry at God over not saving the Ninevites. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. The Lord replied, is it right for you, Jonah, to be angry about this? See, God was questioning about being there angry. Do you have, are you right for doing this? He's, in the question, he's wanting them to think it over. But make sure when you get ready to deal with these things, it's the right time. Ephesians 4, 26, verse 27. Here's the next way to have the clean fight. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says, And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry because anger gives a foothold to the devil. Don't let anger build up day after day. Set a time to deal with it and keep that, that time. Keep that time when you're going to deal with it. Also, a, 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 a fair way to... to, to to have a good fight is keep it tactful. Ephesians 4.29, it says, don't use foul or abusive language. No name calling. Watch your words, guard your tongue, because this is, and this is probably the hardest thing to do. Wrong words will only intensify the conflict and, and stoke up the fire that's already burning. Then in verse 29 of Ephesians 4, the next way to have a, a fair fight, it says, let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Words that say there's hope and progress and feeling. That's what you want to say. Those are the words you want to use. They're words that encourage hope, progress, and healing. Tact. Tact helps to diffuse the situation and to put everyone at ease. When we sin, whether it's at home or work or in our heart or against our wife or others, we grieve the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4.30 says. Paul says, don't do that. He said, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Another way to keep a, a fair fight is to keep it private. Ephesians 4.31 says, get rid of all, bit, all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Don't fight in front of others. Your children, your family members, your friends, don't fight in front of them. Don't ridicule your partner or air your dirty laundry in front of anyone else because it will only embarrass your spouse and make them even more resentful. And then lastly, in Ephesians 4.32, way to keep, have a, a fair fight is keep it clean. Keep it clean. It says, instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. At the heart of kindness 
is God's grace. We need to clean up the mess. We need to be gracious enough to wipe our minds clean of the wrong done to you. You know, we're real good at going back 5, 10, 15 years and bringing up something way back then to, 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 to bring it against our partner at the moment. Christ has forgiven us of our sins and he says they've been buried. He says, and don't dig them up. God doesn't even bring them up. God doesn't bring them up and, and, and you know, put them in front of our face. They're gone. They're buried. They're under the blood. We are not to bring up the sins of the past. Be gracious enough to cleanse your mind of all the wrong or whatever wrong has been done to you. Don't keep a record of it. Don't keep a record of it. Forgive the offender. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, he says, Love thinks no evil. It keeps no record of being wronged. Notice that. It doesn't keep a record. It doesn't keep track of the wrong that's been done to me from the past. But the best remedy to eliminate any conflict, don't start it. Don't start a quarrel. Proverbs 17, 14 says, because starting a, because starting a quarrel is like opening a floodgate. So stop before a dispute breaks out. And I'm going to close with verse 6 here. She says, I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leaped up when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. Beginning with verse 6 here, Solomon's wife is pursuing forgiveness. She jumps into action to resolve the problem. She says, I opened the door for my love. She said, my heart leaped up when he spoke. She said, I looked for him. She said, and I called out to him. So we see that she started the process. She jumped into the action to resolve the problems. And, and hopefully it's sooner than later. Because the longer it takes, you know, sometimes the worse the situation gets. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this really, really instructive uh, chapter here, Father, and the things that your word has to say about resolving conflict. And, and, and to not start it is the best thing, Father, to help us to, to, to stop, to really examine what it is we're getting ready to argue about and just so many times just let it get out of, blown uh, out of control, Father. And, and Lord, help us to be, again, deny ourselves, God, to help us t- see ourselves as who we are, really are. We all have difficulties in our life. We all have problems, Lord. None of us are perfect, God. Only Jesus is perfect. Help us, Lord, to, to make him our model, to live our lives after him. Father, to, to look at his word tonight, God, and take it to heart. Father, not just to think, oh, that was, you know, that was a, a neat study or, or that was you know, great advice, and then to not apply it. It doesn't do us any good. So, Lord, again, may your spirit minister to us, Lord. May he convict us. May he give us the strength to do, God, what we need to do. And may we obey your word, Father. Not just the things that we we like or are easy to do, God, but especially those things that are difficult but yet are beneficial to us. And most of all, Lord, bring glory to you. As Paul said, whatever we do, whatever, whether we eat, drink, or sleep, 
Let us do all to the glory of God. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.